Welcome to the 32nd episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where an underage girl and her 19-year-old boyfriend robbed and murdered a hardworking, loving husband and father. Our show is often horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language, so if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but we must warn you, sometimes we will make jokes and laugh during our podcast. To learn more about us, and find links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. If you like what you hear and you'd like to help us out, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends. The more the merrier. So how's it going this week, Cindy? It's going pretty well. You know, I got another hole dug in my face today. Good Lord. Are you going to have any face left by the time they're <laughs> finished digging holes out of it? I know. It's just a little biopsy. Yeah. Just a little one. I'm so worried for you. But I'm I, I, I'm praying and I know everything will be okay. So, oh, yeah. So SPF hopefully <laughs> hopefully we can um, have a good announcement next week that your biopsy came back. It's clean. Yes. And if it comes back, then we you have all of our support. I'm sure that, you know, our listeners are, are going to send prayers and good vibes and all that good stuff. So I hope yeah. so. I just want everyone to wear their sunscreen. Yeah. And hopefully you won't stress over it this whole week. You know, you're used to yeah. this anyway, aren't you? I am. I'm like, it. Is, I mean, I hate that saying it is what it is, but... It is what it, you can't it stress is. over it, right? Yeah. There's nothing that's going to make it better until you know the results. So why worry about it? And my dermatologist wasn't, he wasn't like, oh man, you know, this I mean, is bad Would he do anything. it? If Would he be that way? If Well, no, the very first time I ever saw him, he walked in the room and was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's 90% chance that's, or 99% chance that's basal cell. He was like, the gnarlier, the better. You know, we like oh, him that yeah. way. And, oh. you know, I mean, as soon as he saw me, he goes, oh man. I remember he, he said, you are far too young for this. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah, he wouldn't sugarcoat it, and he would probably cry with me, but, you yeah. know, he's my buddy. Well, yeah, I'm sure you two have uh, gone through a lot together. He needs to name his name branch his, after me. Yeah, name, name your, his barn after <laughs> you, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't have anything nearly as exciting. Um but that's okay. Oh, yeah. We bought kayaks. My husband oh, and I nice. bought kayaks. Um, Mother's Day, Father's Day gift to each other. And we've been we've been um, kayaking in a lot of different uh, places. We went out to the bay one day. We went to um, a local creek two different days. So nice. we decided that we're going to just go um, kayaking different waterways every weekend. Just wear your sunscreen. Oh, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> and Kobe did. Yeah, Kobe didn't, oh. and uh, he's burnt. And I'm like, you know, not smart. Do I need to go visit uh, him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said, you know, Cindy's coming over and her nose isn't on. You know, <laughs> you want to talk about sunburn. My nose is on right now. Yes. Okay, so um, I have a couple trivia questions for you before we get started. Are Ooh, you ready? Can I say one more thing? Yes. All right. So I've been on the internet. Dun, dun, dun. Um, <laughs> please don't make fun of people wearing masks. Because you don't know why they're wearing the mask. Right. Like, especially, I've seen a bunch of, like, stupid things, stupid videos saying, you know, oh, people wearing masks in their car is like, you know, you're the reason why 
there's directions on Pop-Tart packages and stuff like that, like saying those people are stupid. Well, I promise if I have my mask on in a car, it's because I don't have a nose on. Right. And And nobody wants to see that. Nobody (laughs) wants to see that. And if you say something to me and make fun of me, you're going to see it. Yeah. So. And I know that you have actually had, like, and typically men say some really. Yes. Insensitive things to you, like oh, yeah. You know, somebody said something about your husband punching you or something one yes, time. Yes, I bet or... you won't talk back to your husband. And I yeah. was like, um, I have cancer, <laughs> you fucking asshole. Yeah. So I mean, if you say something to me like, oh, you're the reason why, da, 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 I'm gonna rip off my mask and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna give you. You're gonna yeah. see it. You're gonna see it. Right. Okay. Good. So I just wanted to put that out there. So don't be an asshole because someone wearing a mask isn't hurting well, you. So none of our fans are assholes, okay? Yeah. None of our listeners are assholes. All right. So you ready for trivia? Yes. I'm okay. Ready for trivia. Can you name the oldest educational institution in America? Um, I want to say Yale, but I don't think it's Yale. Okay, you're. It's, it's not Yale. Okay. It's Harvard. Okay. And do you know when the institution first opened its doors? Uh, well, I know that it was prior to the United States being a country. I know that part. Right. You're right. <laughs> so I'm going to say er, mm, mid-1700s. It opened its doors in 1636. That wow. was 384 years ago. Wow. I knew it was older than the United uh-huh. States. Now, this week's murder takes place in Burlington, Vermont, near the campus of UVM, which is the University of Vermont, which is the fifth oldest university in New England, established in 1791, which was 129 years ago. No, 229. I can't do the math. Long time ago. Long time ago. I thought the campus that I attended, SLU, St. Louis University, was old because it was old. But it was established in 1881, which is um, a lot younger than the University of Vermont. Anyway, UVM is a beautiful campus, New England, old trees, old buildings. It's nestled in about a 15-minute walk from beautiful downtown Burlington, which boasts bars, restaurants, eclectic shops, and more. It's a happening little progressive city with art, music, and culture. The campus itself offers plenty to do. Ping pong, movies, theater. There's a naked run once a year. I don't think I would ever do that. (laughs) Ever. I'm I'm not sure what it is. Um, I didn't look it up, but I am super curious. (laughs) There's also a Halloween festival that sounded pretty cool. Um, Those are just a few things to do. According to the Insider's Guide to Colleges, colleges, students on campus tell you what you really want to know. University of Vermont students care about skiing, snowboarding, basketball, and hockey. As a matter of fact, hockey players are like gods there. You know, in the the South, it's our football. And uh, in that area, it's hockey. Now, most people, according to uh, this book, say that people are nice and happy there. There are many places to hike, explore, and snowboard. So there, there's just a lot of like mountainous terrain. Um, There's, you know, a lot of, a lot of, outdoors activities oh i bet i bet it's beautiful i i would love to visit there but definitely not in the winter time nope <laughs> now uvm is touted as the best fit for the eclectic downtowner and the adventurous outdoorsy type so it's a perfect place for the college student who wants a little bit of you know the art and the culture with a lot of the outdoor activities It'll be like hipsters yeah, I lots I mean, of hipsters. very progressive or liberal. I, mm-hmm. I'm getting that from from this research. All of this, all of these things, along with an environmental studies program and the attendance of her best friend, 
drew 21-year-old Michelle Gardner Quinn to the University of Vermont in the fall of 2006 for her senior year of college. Oh, so she transferred there her senior year? Yes. Okay. And we're going to talk about her a little bit. Um, she was born in 1985, so she's only, she would only be two years older than, well, yeah. Yeah. Certain. She's a baby. Yeah, than William. Um, she grew, she was born and grew up in Arlington, Virginia, which is an affluent suburb outside of Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. She pretty much designed her own educational path at a very young age. She was already well-traveled by the time she made it to the University of Vermont in 2006. According to friends and family, she was intensely independent from a young age. She attended H.B. Woodlawn, an alternative magnet school for grades 6 through 12 that encourages students to design their own educational experience. I had to look this school up. Wow, interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, man, that, it was, okay, so here's their philosophy. The H.B. Woodlawn program is designed to provide our students with more control over their education than traditional comprehensive schools permit. We prize self-motivation and self-discipline in our students, for we know that these characteristics are vital for success here. Hmm. So this was a philosophy that she lived by her entire college life, too. So she it, she bounced around, I am guess, to kind of create her own program around what she wanted. And when a college didn't have what she wanted, she would go to a different college. Wouldn't that make it really hard to graduate, or was she just... Uh, making sure that the the I'm not really sure yeah I'm not really sure what the motivation is but um she she went to a number of different colleges okay so once she graduated from high school she went to a place called um Goucher College and I don't know if I'm saying that right I've never heard of it Goucher College it's in Baltimore while there um she had many travel adventures that were um like study abroad type things and she traveled to costa rica and brazil she really had a passion for latin america she also went to south africa and on some um these were all as i said study expeditions but on one of them she actually got to observe and record the exploits of a group of swamp giant swamp otters i mean i think that would be so cool interesting yeah Hmm. A giant uh, swamp. Yeah, otter. they're in South America. I did look them up, and they're, I mean, otters are so cute to they me. They are. And they're so fun to watch. But these are bigger ones, and um, I looked them up. They actually go back to prehistoric times. Really? Yes. Hmm. Pretty interesting stuff. As a college student, she bounced around. As I said, she after attending Goucher, she attended American University, Antioch College, the University of Virginia, and Hampshire College. So those are a lot of different colleges. And then for her senior year, she transferred to UVM. All right. So here we are. She's joined her best friend, Tommy Lang. And I did find evidence that they boyfriend and girlfriend for some time in their younger years. But they grew up together in Arlington. They were best friends. And she transferred transferred there partly because University of Vermont allowed her to design her own combined major, which was environmental studies and Latin American studies. She was an avid outdoors woman. She loved hiking, skiing, camping, and snowboarding. She really picked up on snowboarding. She was pretty good. And um, the University of Vermont, Vermont provided all of those things. Sounds so like it's ideal, place, right? Yeah. Great place to be. She was talented in everything she did. She was passionate about music. She played the cello. She sang in her church choir. She loved nature, photography, and travel. She made friends easily at University of Vermont, and she socialized on the weekends. And when she first got there, she joined this group called Trek, T-R-E-K, and they went on hikes and camping and stuff. So it was it was a very... Like they were trekking through the wilderness. Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay. And it was a very uh, 
fun, loving group. Like they all got along. It wasn't tight knit, but they were, you know, they were all good friends and hung out together. According to her older half sister, Yasmin, Michelle was just really, really happy with the path that she'd made for herself. Her sister said that Michelle was really coming into herself and she made a great impact with her environment work, environmental work. So she, she just had the great, a great childhood with great advantages, I would think. Yeah. And very, it sounds like she was very mature. And yes. Helped. You, I mean, you would have to be to forge your own path. With yes, your I would think so. One of her best friend, friends from childhood described Michelle as carefree. She didn't care what others thought. She wasn't interested in owning designer things. She just created her own style. Good for her. Yeah. All right, so here it is, the fall of 2006. She's been at University of Vermont. It's October. It's October 6th. She's been there, what, since mid-August is when university usually starts. So, usually, so yeah. just a few months. And it's parents' weekend. So our parents are up from Arlington. They're hanging out. They hung out all day. They ate. They snapped some photos. They talked. You know, they, had, they browsed shop, you know, browse and things like that. And according to her parents, they all agreed that they were going to, um, Michelle was going to go out with friends that night, and then they were all going to meet the next day at lunch. All right. But the next day, Michelle never showed up. She never came. She never called. She never showed up. And her parents are start freaking out a little bit because this isn't like her. Yeah. I mean, if mm-hmm. your parents are in town, you're going to most likely be with your parents. Or at least yeah. text them and say, you know, I had a little too much to drink last night. Let's meet right. for dinner instead. But she, no contact whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, they went to the dorm. They contacted the friends that they knew. Uh, they ended up calling Tommy Lang, her her best friend from Arlington. Mm-hmm. How frightening. Right? They just knew something ro- was wrong. So they ended up calling police to report her missing about 630 um, Saturday night. So please, you know, they immediately begin investigating. We don't want anything to happen to our college students. It's a college town. We just need to be careful, make sure everything's okay. Well, they interviewed some of her friends and they found out that Michelle went out with a group of friends, including her best friend, Tommy. They went to a couple of bars went, and then Michelle left alone at about 1.50 a.m. because one of her other friends had turned 21 and they were going to meet up and hang out with um, at the girl's apartment. Or at some house. Okay. So she left. Um, she's walking away. Um, she walks a few blocks to the ski rack to meet her other group of friends. And while she's there, her phone dies. So she doesn't have any way to contact her friends to find out where they were. She doesn't really know the area too well either. So here she is on um, a dark, deserted street with a dead cell phone when all of a sudden a guy shows up. <laughs> Hallelujah, right? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, right. Michelle asked him, can I borrow your cell phone? And then she made two calls. One of those calls was to the newly 21-year-old friend that Michelle was supposed to meet. She never answered. The girl never answered. And she didn't have any other phone numbers to call because her phone was dead. Right. I mean, that's right? like a handicap these days. I don't, yeah. I mean, there's very few people. Like, the only person's phone number that I can think of off the top of my head is my husband's. Right. And, that's and so she knew Tommy's. Forever. <laughs> right. So she knew Tommy's right off the bat. And she called. Right. She called him a few times that night. There were, police later found out that the girl's phone was on vibrate. The girl's like, I didn't hear it. I had it on vibrate all night. So, I mean, can you imagine living with that? Ugh. But the, here's the mm-hmm. thing. I always, I never have my sound turned on, ever. I don't either. And you know what? But I don't really care about calls. So sometimes 
Not you, of course. <laughs> Not you, or you know, but sometimes it's like, uh, just text me. Don't call. Right. Don't yeah. call. The other call um, she made was to her best friend, Tommy. Lang told police that when he found out Michelle was missing on Saturday, he called the number a couple of times. Basically, the man said that he saw her walking up the hill toward the dorms, and that's about it. The police provide this provided police with their first lead, and they learned that the man who let Michelle borrow his phone, the man who was the last person known to have seen Michelle, was 36-year-old construction worker Brian Lee Rooney. Now, Rooney told police the same thing he told Lang. I let her borrow my phone. Police canvassed the area um, around the ski rack, which is a shop where she was supposed to meet her friend. Mm -hmm. Ski rack didn't have surveillance video, but they did have two places that had surveillance video that captured a Subaru passing Michelle about, um, about between 150 and 215. They were able to look at the license plate and they interviewed the person and let him go immediately. It was, it was, there was nothing to show that he had anything to do with it. At 2.35 in the video showed Michelle walking with Brian Rooney, who told police that he and Michelle went their separate ways after he let her use the phone. But when police confronted him about this, he changed his story and said, oh no, I forgot. You know, I've been drinking, but I did walk her part of the way because I parked my Jeep my red jeep somewhere along the way so we did walk walk part of the way together you just conveniently forgot that right because you know everybody was drunk that night we we're gonna get to it Rooney was the last person to see her and he lied about walking her towards her dorm and he seemed a little shaky in his story he was suspicious so of course investigators began asking around about him they're gonna dig into his life as they do they did find out that he had been arrested for four duis holy moly he also he had a driver's license Right? I don't know if he had a work-related one. He'd also gotten caught driving with a suspended or revoked license a a couple of times. But that's not the worst of it. They interviewed his boss, and later Rooney claims that this got him fired. They interviewed his friends, his former wives and girlfriends, and his mom and stepdad. His former wives? Uh, You know, that was kind of iffy because I think that he was married twice. Mm Mm-hmm. We do learn something from his first ex-wife and then from um, an ex-girlfriend. So I'm not sure anything about the second wife if he actually ever was married twice. Okay. It's kind of unclear. Now, Rooney's friends said, yes, he was out with us all night until we left the bar. Then we went our separate ways. We all drove together and he met us and we didn't park in the same spot. His parents, his mom and stepdad said that when they woke up Saturday morning, he was fully dressed on sleeping on their couch. He pointed out, they pointed out that this was memorable because he didn't usually sleep inside. They had an RV out in the yard for him. Oh. Right. He's 36 sleeping in his parents' RV. But his, his parents, um, you know, said it's not, it's, it was just odd that we saw him on the couch that morning. Please learned a lot from his former wife, her sister, and his ex-girlfriend, and none of it was good. They interviewed his ex-girlfriend and learned that she had put a restraining order out because he had threatened to kill her, she got pregnant. And, of course, she got pregnant. And um, she said that he left her because of this. Oh, that sounds like a yeah. stand-up guy. Stand-up guy, right? Then, um, and there are a lot of different detectives working on this. So it's kind of confusing, but I guess this is all simultaneously going on. Right. Like somebody's interviewing this woman. Somebody's interviewing this woman. Yeah. I kind of cut a lot of that out because Kobe said it was He's like, Mom, you don't need all that. It's confusing. So, <laughs> Sometimes it is. It, you know? Yeah, it's, it's kind of, it gets too pertinent. convoluted, but yeah. So inve- investigators then interviewed his ex-wife, Raquel, and she was married to Rooney for only six months, but they were together for a few years before they actually got married, I guess. And they had a daughter together. 
Raquel told state police that her ex-husband was a predator. She told them that she had obtained a restraining order against him in April 2000. She left Rooney because she was afraid of him. She accused him of drugging her many times so he could rape her. Oh, my God. Right? What a fucking piece of shit. She also accused Rooney of threatening at least once to kill her. In the affidavit, she said he told her, you will think I'm funny when I kill you. Another time he told her, if you keep this up, I will bash your head in. He regularly threatened that if she ever left and took their daughter, it would be her last mistake. Good Lord. Yeah, it gets worse. Good night. Raquel told police during that interview that a few years ago, she and her sister were were just hanging out talking. And her sister told her about a couple of incidents that occurred when she was a child staying with the couple. Uh Raquel told police that while the young girl stayed with the couple one night, Rooney placed a rag with chemicals on it over the girl's mouth, rendering her unconscious. Then he sexually assaulted her. According to the police affidavit, the sister suffered burns to her mouth from the chemicals and was taken to a nearby hospital for treatment. So there was that evidence of treatment, but it was never said what the chemicals were from. The young girl told hospital workers and her sister that she wasn't clear what could have caused the burns. Years later, Raquel's sister opened up about the sexual assault. But according to Raquel, they decided not to report it at that time. I mean, who would believe them anyway? It happened years ago. She didn't tell anyone at the time because she was really afraid of him. And and also, she wasn't sure if she was, you know, she was kind of out of it, but knew what was going on at the same time. After learning this information, police subsequently then interviewed the sister who at that time in 2006 was now 22 years old. She told police about several other incidents on different dates when Rooney sexually assaulted her. She told police that the assaults had occurred in 1996 when she was 12 and another time in February 1998 when she was 14. So I guess she tried not to spend the night over there. I know, bet. On f- So this, um, this brings us to a week later. It's Friday the 13th, October th- um, 13th, 2006. And Michelle Gardner Quinn's body is discovered. It is found stuffed into a crevasse in Huntington Gorge, which is about 13 miles east of Burlington. Huntington Gorge is a popular swimming hole um, to the college crowd, but it's dangerous. Like it has a plaque that brags. uh, I wouldn't say brags, but it's kind of like um, maybe like a danger sign. 20 people have died there. Oh, wow. So a crevasse, is that like a crevice? A crevasse is like, um, <laughs> I believe a crevasse is just like where it drops down, like two cliffs kind of meet, and there's like a big, like, I don't hole. have those here. No. But why don't you look it up while I finish talking about okay, this Okay, I'm art. sorry. Okay, no worries. But I'm, I, I did look it up. I have looked it up lots of times, and I know it's called crevasse, not crevice, um, but I think they're kind of similar, maybe. Like, I, crevice is kind of like, like a deep crack, a fracture. Right. But what's a crevasse? Look at the difference. All right. So while she's looking that up, I'm going to continue. Her body was stuffed in a crevasse. It was covered with some leaves and twigs. Um, and it was discovered by two hikers. Now, this Huntington Gorge, 20 people have died there, either by drowning because there's like a raging waters. You can get bashed into some rocks or there's a waterfall of people like jumping off and dying, jumping out. Wow. All right. What's a crevasse? Okay. So... Both terms from the Anglo-French word crevice, crevice, to break meaning two different, they both mean two different things. There's a crevice and then there's a crevasse. Okay. So a crevice are cracks, splits caused by a fracture of a rock 
Okay. While a crevasse is a deep fracture in a glacier or sheet of ice. Okay. Well, they called it a crevasse, yeah. but I don't think it was ice. I think it was just like just um, a, a crevice crack. in the herd. Like yeah. a deep yeah. one as opposed to just like a crack in the... Yeah. She was shoved okay. down in a crack in the earth and kind of covered with twigs and leaves. And I'm going to get into that. Yeah. I'm going to get into that a little bit later when we talk about the police report. Oh, in North America, it's a breach in an embarkment of a river or a canal. There you go. All right, sorry for the interruption. No, no, it's good because I, I, I always, I don't use that word enough to like well, that's have it stored right at the front of my memory. Yeah, there. right. Now, what's pronounce yeah. everything incorrectly? Yeah, so. that's okay. <laughs> that's one of the things that's so endearing about you. And the hikers called the police, who confirmed that the body was Michelle Gardner Quinn. Rooney was the last person of interest, or was the lead person of interest, his, because his parents' home is only like ten or fifteen minutes from where she was found. Damn. It's not and looking good for him. A lot of people said it's hard to get up there. You know, it's not like an easy trek. Like it's it's kind of an isolated place that local people would know. And you know, that's not to say that he did it, but it's convenient. It's not a well known right? place. Right. Okay. Now their uh prosecutors were prosecutors decided, you know what, we don't have any evidence to charge him for murder, but we can charge and arrest Rooney with sexual assault and lewd and lascivious conduct with a child. Oh, so there wasn't like a statues of, statue of limitation? Well, that's what his attorney asked. Oh, so I'm okay. glad you asked. <laughs> in the affidavit filed in a Vermont district court, witnesses accused Rooney of using chemical soaked rags or other substances to render victims. And you notice I said victims because there is another, they're discovering more than just one victim. Uh, to render victims unconscious and unable to resist his sexual advances. In addition, he was accused of molesting a child. That's his daughter, his sister-in-law. He was charged with sexual assault, accused of drugging the girl in 1998 and having sex with her at his home. The assistant attorney said that Rooney was an individual who was preying on younger and weaker victims. Classic freaking rapist. Right. Other allegations of se sexual misconduct were discovered. Two other women claim that they were also sexually assaulted. Good grief. This guy just is like, has. But none of them called the police when it happened. What? And that's, of course, the I attorney. Understand. So I did look this up and there's a reason why people don't. Okay. First of all, he kind of had the same MO as Cosby, where he would render the victims unconscious and then sexually molest them while they were and they might not even realize it till until later. after the fact, like, you know, maybe they're sore or, you and know, they, they don't have remember. Right. Right. And they don't they can't say whether or not they gave permission because they don't remember. And that's probably I could see they're like, well, I don't remember. So I don't know. But I don't know if you're not in your right state of mind. Right. But there's so many times where it's like, oh, well, what were you wearing? What were you know, it's always exactly. turns around on exactly. the female. Exactly. Which is complete horseshit. Now, prosecutors say that the common thread out of all the sex case cases is that Rooney used ether or other chemicals to render the women unconscious before performing sex acts on them. Where do you uh, get ether? Can you just buy that? I have no idea. I, I have no idea. I mean, it said it was a construction worker. Is that something? I mean, I have no idea. I, I don't idea. think so. I mean, who knows? Apparently, he filmed some of his sexual conquests, and a judge ordered the alleged victims in one of the sexual assault cases to watch the homemade videos to determine if they show her being molested by Rooney. Now, Rooney's attorney wanted to have her watch the more than 30 hours of the video. Can you imagine sitting in a room with other people having to watch a video of yourself being raped? No. 
Why? Rooney's attorney oh wanted God. to have her watch the more than 30 hours of video to make sure that it was her or that, you know, just to create trauma, I guess. Who knows? But the assistant... What a piece of shit. Right? Yeah. He should be disbarred. The assistant attorney general, Kathy Norman, and the Chittenden County prosecutors wanted to introduce as evidence parts of the videos allegedly created by Rooney. She wanted the victim identified in court papers only as A.S. And we learn her name later. She's Rooney's ex-girlfriend, the one that said that he left her when she was pregnant. The, she, the attorney general wanted her to specify which videos show her unconscious and being subject, subjected to non-consensual acts and which show her as a willing participant. But Norman opposed the defense's request to have the woman view the 30 hours, saying okay. it would be traumatic for her. Good. But Slay, and that's Rooney's defense attorney, claimed that it was necessary to provide context for Rooney's defense. The prosecutor told judge, the judge, that the victim should only have to verify that she's the victim in a single 10-minute video. Look, that's me. I'm the victim. I'm unconscious. That's it. The judge ruled that she must view each of the films with Slay and a prosecutor, but only long enough to determine if she's the woman in it and whether she was unconscious at the time. There's no need for her to watch each video in its entirety, according to the judge. Now, during Rooney's arraignment, Slay made it clear that the two charges were a convenience for the state who could use the charges to hold Rooney while the state continued to investigate Gardner Quinn's death. Hmm. I mean, that's definitely a convenience for them. But hey, these allegations just came to light. Slay believed that the evidence against Rooney was flimsy and circumstantial and the charges should be dismissed. He also argued that there's a strong statute of limitations case to be made, which is what you brought up. Right. But the state said, no, that only works because um, that only works if we already knew about the crime and we let it lapse for six years before bringing charges. Oh, really? So since we just learned about the case, we just learned about these sexual sexual molestation allegations. The statute of limitations does not apply to that because we just learned about it so i guess that's how cosby is because some of his stuff happened 20 years ago 25 years ago right it could be and i think every state has a different statute of limitations on different crimes that's true as well but but yeah that makes sense so if they didn't know about it well we knew about it and we couldn't prove it so after six years we can't bring charges but since we just learned about it yes we it's not statute of limitations he did argue that later on uh, a little bit more in depth, but still the, you know, even the Vermont Supreme Court said, mm, too bad, so sad. The judge agreed with the prosecutors and Rooney's attorney entered a not guilty plea on Rooney's behalf in district court. Rooney spoke only to his lawyers. The judge set bail at $150,000, which, by the way, he was able to make. Yeah, now he, he just yeah. had to do 10%. Right. Yeah. His um, his attorney tried unsuccessfully to have the charges thrown out, saying that there was insufficient probable cause. And why are the deck? Why is the decade old charges? Why are they being filed now? He's calling it a peremptory strike by police investigating the Gardner Quinn death, which, you know what? That's smart on their part. Yep. Because now they know where he is. He is, by the way, from this point forward and actually from the point where they learn his phone number under constant surveillance. Good. Like he's sounds like he needs to be like, yeah, I mean, it talks about like, I'm not going to read through all that. I'm leaving it out. Like my husband, my son's like, why are you telling us all that? But like they follow him to the coffee shop and they follow him to McDonald's and, you know, they're pretty specific about every place they go and what they say to him. Because he's clearly a predator. Right. 
So October 13th, um, Friday the 13th, she's found. He's arrested for the sexual assault charges, but they can't arrest him for her death until they have enough evidence. They get that. And on October 25th, 2006, they obtained an arrest warrant for Brian Lee Rooney for the death of Michelle Gardner Quinn. He was charged with aggravated homicide. Now, there's a difference between homicide and aggravated homicide. Do you know what the difference is? I do not. So aggravated means that the person dies in the commission of another crime. So remember okay. when we did um, Adrian Robinson from Georgia mm -hmm. and the nun died while he kidnapped her? Yes. So that would be aggravated. aggravated. Okay. That would be an aggravated crime where he's committing another crime and the person dies. Like as a result of, right. As a result of it or during the commission of the other okay. crime. So here are, th this was a 13 page document and I'm not going over every single part of it. I do have a list of things that I'm going to talk about. Um, and some of it's kind of repetitive, but it's a little bit more detail. Okay. So this is the 13 page document um, when they got the arrest warrant for Brian L. Rooney. So first um, says that on October 13, 2006, the body of Michelle Gardner Quinn was found at the Huntington Gorge. The decedent was wedged face down, head down between two rock outcreep croppings mm. in a fetal position on her left side. Her upper body was covered with legs and, and twigs. On October 14th, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner ruled that Quinn was a victim of a homicide. The cause of death was from neck compressions and there was an indication of blunt force trauma. The medical examiner also found indication of sexual trauma to her body. The Burlington Police Department took a report that Michelle Gardner Quinn was downtown drinking with friends after dinner with her parents on October 6th and she was now missing. Several of her friends and associates were located and contacted as references for this investigation. It was learned that on October 6th, Quinn was out with several friends when she became separated. Not knowing the area very well, she began calling friends in an attempt to reconnect with them. At approximately 1.54, early October 7th, her cell phone stopped working. At approximately 1.58 through 2.07, a former boyfriend of Quinn, Thomas Lang, that's her best friend, who had been out with Quinn began receiving calls from Quinn from phone number 802-363-1339. Lang reported that Quinn was asking Lang to reconnect with her, with her with her friends as her phone numbers were in her dead phone. Lang told investigators that he believed that the cell phone belonged to Brian Rooney. He reported that he thought it was Rooney because when Quinn was reported missing, he called Rooney's cell phone. I told you all that. Right. Now, Lang reported that Rooney told him he did not know Quinn, but that he let her use his cell phone during the early morning hours of October 7th um, while they conversed outside the ski rack. Okay. Lang said he called Rooney at 1751 hours on October 7th, and that's like 551. Mm -hmm. And they spoke for four minutes. Bless you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I tried. <laughs> Bless you. Thank they you. spoke for four minutes and 23 seconds. Lang said Rooney answered the phone and indicated that he remembered talking to him the night before when Quinn had borrowed Rooney's cell phone. Lang said he asked Rooney if he knew where Quinn was and when Rooney saw her last. Lang said during that conversation, Rooney sounded tired and out of it as if he had just woken up. Lang said Rooney told him that he did not know her whereabouts and that she and Rooney had parted ways after walking east on Main Street. Yeah, a long night of murder and will do that to you. <laughs> right? <laughs> kind of make you out of it. When asked if Rooney was being evasive in his answers, Lang said that his answers were evasive a little, but he just attributed it to possibly Rooney having just woken up. Lang said Rooney made mention of there being a lot of people out that night and words to the effect of everyone was trashed. 
Lang said Rooney made mention of there being a couple of black people standing on the corner Ooh. or words to that effect. So, you know, why do you think, what do you think might have happened to Quinn? Oh, yeah, there were a couple of black dudes on the corner. What does that like, have to do with anything? Really? It seems like a lot of these murders, oh, there were black dudes around. Yeah. I mean, really? It's ridiculous. It is. The police didn't take any credence in that, by the way. (laughs) Lang said that he received a telephone call back from Rooney at 6.30 on Saturday night on a cell... No, it was Sunday night, October 8th. And the substance of the phone call was that Rooney was calling to say he called Quinn. He recalled Quinn making mention of calling a cab. So now he's remembering she's going to call a cab. And um, Lang said that Rooney sounded much more alert during this conversation. Yeah, he probably woke up and was like, oh, my God, I talked to somebody. I need to get my story straight. Right. I'm a freaking liar. So on October 8th, there were some um, detectives assigned to the case. And they con- they had already contacted Unicell and confirmed that <laughs> the phone number was, in fact, Brian Rooney. What? Wow. Unicell? That's an, old, that's an oldie. <laughs> is it? I never even heard uh-huh. of it. 2006. Yeah. I yeah. mean, 2006 is a long time ago. They did determine that that phone number, in fact, belonged to Ryan's Brian Rooney. They also contacted Verizon, which was Quinn's cell phone, and learned that her cell phone had stopped working at about 154. They drove to, to talk to Rooney and tell me at 2330 hours, that's 1130 p.m., mm-hmm. they went to this guy's house. He stepped outside onto the entrance steps and spoke to the officers. Rooney told the officers that he was down near the ski rack in Burlington when a female was alone, came up to him, asked to use a cell phone. She had mentioned to Rooney that she was supposed to meet a friend of hers and her cell phone had died. Well, good for them not waiting until the morning. Right? I mean, it just seems kind of, if the police knocked on my door at 1130 p.m., I would be freaking out. (laughs) But then again, he has to know. Yeah. Right? So he said that he let the girl use his phone. The f- girl called a friend um, who called back on Rooney's cell phone. So the so Lang did call back and say, can I talk to my friend? When asked why he was down in the area of the ski rack, Rooney told the officers that he was there because he was separated from the people that he had arrived downtown with. And they had parked their cars in different areas. And he had driven his red Jeep Cherokee there. Rooney said he did not hear much of the conversation when the girl was speaking to her fr- friend on the phone. But he thought the friend, who was a guy, was going to come and pick the girl up. After she hung up with her friend, Rooney said the girl had mentioned something about getting a cab. The girl had also mentioned she was looking for another friend who lived in a building in the area, but the girl didn't know which building it was. Rooney said that the girl thanked him for the use of his phone and she started walking up Main Street. He also said that he started walking up Main Street in an effort to find his friends. He told the officer that he walked from the area of the ski rack all the way to Main and South Union Streets with the girl before he turned to go south on South Union Street to get his car. He told officers that the girl continued to walk up Main Street. So Hmm. he's got a lot of stories about this, you know? Like very detailed. Like sometimes like being detailed is good, but then I think sometimes they look at it like, oh, well, if you're too detailed, then. He's not a very smart man. Yeah, no. Now the officer, when he, when they were talking to him, noticed that he had numerous cuts on his hands and they asked Rooney about them. Rooney said that he received those while working and he's in construction. It's possible. Yeah. They noted no scratches or cuts on Rooney's face or his neck area. And then. They asked to see his collarbone area, and that didn't have any scratches on it. He did have a few scratches on the wrist and forearm area. Now, the next day at approximately 9.10, they met with Rooney. Officers met with Rooney as residents and asked if he would be willing to talk to them about 
about the incident. She asked for my phone. I let her. She thanked me for my phone. And she said that he was, well, they were both looking for friends. But then he said that Quinn continued east on Main Street, heading towards the college. And that was the end of it. When Rooney was asked if there was any reason why Quinn's DNA would be in his vehicle, like hair, skin, and fingerprints, he said no. He said, um, the, well, the cops said, well, you sure you didn't offer her a ride? Like, why would she get a cab? Why couldn't you? And the guy's like, no, I, I don't think so. So they're kind of like giving him an out here. Right. Did you give her a ride? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. He asked. Um, he was asked if he thought. So. He, he's <laughs> like, well, did you think she was cute? And he's like, yeah, a brunette. He was asked again about the ride and he advised that he's that she said she was OK and just going back to the college. They called in the canine unit to see if Michelle had ever been in Rooney's Jeep. They used one of her shoes and the canine obtained the scent and indicated that there was a positive presence of Quinn's scent coming from the passenger side door and the rear hatch of the vehicle. A standard test was done and then the dog was given the scent as well and was sent out to various cars in the parking lot. The dog did not indicate that Quinn's scent was in those cars. They also used a pair of her underwear belonging to Quinn. And again, the dog indicated a positive presence of her scent in the passenger side door and the rear hatch of the vehicle. Now, just saying that's not evidence in and of itself, because that's not an infallible, I guess, study or. Right. They could, you know, it's not 100 percent. Maybe it's just right. a good place to start. OK, well, right. The dog said this. So now, you know, it alerted on her scent here. So then then that would probably prompt them to then get a warrant to test this vehicle, I guess. Right. So they do. They do. They get warrants for every place. You know, his parents, his work, like all the construction sites that he's been on. Because they, at this point um, during the investigation, they haven't found her body. I'm kind of like going back and forth here. Right. So at this point in the investigation, they're still searching for her. They're hoping that she might be alive somewhere. They also got a warrant for full body photographs. And they called him down. They told him to bring the clothes that he was wearing that night. So he brought jean shoes and a dark fleece. He ended up going down to the district court where there was an, a special agent fuller from the FBI. And I, I just want you to put that in your um, back of your mind for a few minutes because I'm going to come back to Detective Fuller from the FBI. Okay. Special agent, Detective. Very uh, special agent. Fuller. Very special agent Fuller. So Rooney goes down and gets full body, gets full body shots. One of the shots revealed that on the left side on his back, closer to the side, were three marks that appeared to be scratch marks. The marks were fresh, they were still slightly red, and they were beginning to scar over. There was a downward directionality of the marks. They also found on his clothes blood spots. There was a blood spot on the left front inside pocket, on the seat of his pants, and on a sock that were tested presumptive positive for blood. And that also belonged to an unknown male. Police also seized his vehicle and did a search in that. And they found, among other items, a hair that was recovered on the right front door, swabs of smudges from the lift gate, and swabs from the right front exterior. We don't know what those were. Nothing ever came positive about Michelle Gardner Quinn on that in the end. So not sure why they put that in there, but it's evidence they put in the arrest warrant. Okay. Now, one of the sergeants, Sergeant Sear, advised that Rooney told him, I just want to say sorry for not being cooperative. Rooney told him that after the police talked to his boss and he lost his job, he became very angry uh, and he didn't want to cooperate with police anymore. I mean, I can imagine 
that I would be angry. Yeah. I mean, that would be because. Yeah, especially if I was innocent. Yes. I would think I would take that to court. Yes. Now, the police are like, dude, why don't you just take a lie detector test and get it over with and we can prove your innocence? And he's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't. Well, first of all, he said, please stop following me. If I'm with my kids, please don't follow me. He also said, you know, I want to take a lie detector test. I really do. But my lawyer's advising against it. My lawyer said that he took one one time and he failed when he didn't lie. So he's like, yeah, no. I don't want to take it. Now, he did agree eventually to taking a lie detector test. He's finally like, you know what? I'm just going to get it over with. But, you know, it's a really long process. I didn't know this. Like, it takes all day. Oh, really? Finally, after being there several hours and not even, like, it's just getting the baseline for it, Mm -hmm. he finally was like, you know what? Screw this. I don't want to do this anymore. I want my lawyer. The detectives and the FBI agent, Fuller, who were in there, said that he was acting very shady in there. It wasn't, you know, his body language indicated that he was guilty or that he was not providing all the information. Hmm. However, you know, polygraphs aren't acceptable in, as evidence, and he didn't even take the polygraph anyway. He ended up leaving before it was over. Now, again, on uh, Friday, October 13th, her body is found, and she was quickly identified as um, as Michelle that was quick to see. She didn't have much decomposition or anything. So that's when police decided to take him to custody for this sexual assault. Rooney said, I honestly don't know what I did that night. So now he doesn't know what he did that night. He says, if I did it, I deserve to die. Rooney stated that he didn't really know what happened because he must have blacked out. Uh, On October 14th, they went to the chief medical examiner for the autopsy. And there were two wounds to Michelle's head. Her, it looked as if her pants had been removed and then were hastily replaced and her coat was present. It was wrapped around her arm. There were also numerous hairs. It appears that they were pubic or head hairs on her body. They appeared to be different than her own. Her fingernails on her left hand were so short that they were not able to cut them, but the nails on her right were a little bit longer and they were able to be cut. So if she did scratch him, you know, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, her nails are so short. If she did scratch him, there might be skin skin cells underneath yeah. her. There were indications of blunt force trauma and strangulation. She had particular hemorrhaging in her eyes. She also had what appeared to be linear, linear marks on her neck. Hmm. She did have some sort of abrasion at both sides of her neck near her jaw. They also, during the exam, took swabs um, and observed irritation and discoloration to her vagina. They also observed that um, her anus had abrasions to the top part. And they did find abrasions and contusions to her right hand and um, knuckle and her right pinky. She had blunt force trauma to both sides of her head. There was no indication of a skull fracture, but it was advised that the blunt force trauma was potentially caused by her being hit with something hard or hitting a a hard surface. They also took swabs from her um, anus and her vaginal areas that were sent to the Vermont Forensic Lab. On October 16th, the lab did report that semen was recovered from the anal swab. On October 18th, a DNA profile on the semen sample and the blood found on the jeans worn by Brian Rooney the night of the incident came from the same unknown male. Now, remember that they haven't checked his DNA yet, but they do know that the, the sperm and the blood that were on his pants came from the same person. Okay, so do they and not it's have a, male. a search warrant to get... 
They're about to. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. They have This is all taking place within a week. And they're going, and we're going back and forth. Like they're saying, oh, well, this occurred. And then we're going to October 13th. On October 23rd, they ended up taking Rooney to the hospital to retrieve DNA swabs and head, body, and public hate pubic hairs public hairs too (laughs) all dna evidence was sealed in an evidentiary envelope and signed and witnessed by the nurse the photographer and two investigators they're being very particular about this because rooney's attorney slay is like one of the best attorneys in the area like he is like if you were to get in trouble you wouldn't want him to be your attorney and so he's they're they're like marking all their yeah dotting all things that they have to dot so there's no way that this dna that we took off his body is somehow switched or whatever right yeah Yeah. now they finally get the they get a faxed report of the dna analysis on october 25th the report indicated that the samples of semen taken during taken during michelle garner quinn's autopsy matched those from brian rooney the random probability of the evidence occurring in the random Caucasian population is one and two hundred forty quadrillion. Oh wow! So, in other words, he deposited his semen sample in her body. Wow! There was no other person that did it. So now he's just going to admit to, oh no, we had consensual sex, and that's exactly what his his attorney will argue. His attorney said. You know, he really did his best, the best that he could do to defend his client. And like I said, he was, he's, he's an esteemed attorney there. He argued for change of venue and one, he claimed that the FBI agent, and I actually read this, the FBI agent, and he did it anonymously. It came out later that it was him. Mm -hmm. He wrote an editorial in this like entertainment magazine Mm -hmm. that comes out uh, in the area. And he basically said that, you know, she met a predator and he killed her and he raped her, but he never mentioned Rooney's name, but he was like calling him a monster and he deserves to be killed and wow. going on and on about this. And Slay said that basically you have prejudiced the entire jury pool in Burlington in our county. I mean, he was right. He, he was. Um, but the defense attorney also supposedly made an accidental quote unquote comment about DNA evidence to the press, because he's also going to pull in some, uh, he's going to pull in some information about the DNA testing labs. And apparently he shouldn't have said anything to the press about this. And so the judge ordered a gag order and he also granted a change of venue. So whatever, you know, this, the attorney is saying, oh, well, the entire state of Vermont is prejudiced. But, you know, the appeals court said, nope, not going there. You got your change of venue and there was a gag order. So once that happened, nobody knew about it, yeah. about what was going on. But then Slay claimed that police never fully investigated the other suspects spotted in the Subaru. So he brings that in to create reasonable doubt. And police shut that down. You know, we investigated that for, um, fully it turned out that, you know, the kid was just, he was noticed on camera somewhere else. And Michelle Gardner Quinn was seen later with Rooney. The kid was nowhere around. Slay also refuted the crime lab finding, stating that the lab results could not be tr- trusted because this, pr- this same crime lab made prior mistakes with other cases and shouldn't, everything that comes out of that lab should be discounted. The, cl- the crime lab spokesperson testified that, yes, there were two errors on unrelated crimes years ago, but they did not, the incidents did not cause them to lose their accreditation. They were investigated and the mistakes were one-time errors and they did not erase the one in 240 quadrillion results of Rooney's DNA test. Right. 
Rooney stated that a server at the bar where Rooney was that night saw cuts on Rooney's hands. Therefore, the cuts were already there before he even met Michelle. However, the woman that was supposed to testify didn't show up. She did get a contempt of court for not showing up, but her testimony to support a claim was not given at trial. At some point during the trial, Rooney didn't like how things were, how things were going. And he asked the judge, he's like, dude, can I please fire this attorney? I don't like him. He's not doing what he should for me. And the judge looked at him and said, dude, this is the best attorney. You're going to get The it. best attorney in, in the whole state of Vermont, pretty much. You need to just sit back, get quiet, and let him do his job. So that was not granted. Lastly, Slay claimed that there is no way for anyone to know if Michelle died during the act of rape. It could have been consensual, as you said. So the charges should have been second degree murder or even manslaughter. He stated that perhaps the sex was consensual. She died by accident. But in the end, the jury didn't buy it. This, along with the DNA lab, were the main arguments at Rooney's appeal, which he also lost. So he did get an automatic appeal. Yeah, of course. Uh, right. And then he lost that. He, he, mm. That didn't go anywhere. Sorry about your luck. Right. Predator. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. At his sentencing, the judge told him that he was the lowest of the low. He's currently serving a sentence. He's 49 years old. He's somewhere in a Kentucky prison because Vermont sends some inmates to private contracted. Now, he was obviously a sexual deviant, but had he killed before? This is, I came across an online discussion about two missing women in that area, which is how I found Brian Rooney. There's a girl named Maura Murray. She was a college student who went missing in February 2004 after her car was found wrecked in a snowbank. That sounds really familiar. It, there was all, there was like a um, unsolved mysteries on her. I think oxygen is something, maybe Dateline. I think it might be like one of those things that I follow mm -hmm. on social media. Maybe, could be. That it I've could seen be. it. I, there's, a, I mean, that's a whole nother story in itself. But I do want to say that they... There, that was only three and a half hours, between three to three and a half hours from Burlington. But he was a construction worker and he worked in many different counties. Mm -hmm. So it's very possible that they were in the same area around the same time. There was another girl, Brianna Maitland, who was 17, who disappeared on March 19th, 2004, after leaving her job at the Black Lantern Inn in Montgomery, Vermont. Rooney also worked in Montgomery, Montgomery Vermont. Her car was discovered the following day, backed into the side of an abandoned house about a mile away from her workplace, but she was never found. Yeah, there's um, like a true crime podcast about her disappearance, that Mara. Mara Murray, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, to. No, no, it's no, there were, it's a very interesting case because she had a lot of things going on in her life that some people believe she just ran away from her life, just dropped everything and ran away. Oh, wow. It's it's interesting. I didn't I didn't look into it too deeply, but you know her friends and loved ones said no, she did not run away. You know, she had problems, like you know we all as we're growing up go through things. Yeah. Um, she she made some silly mistakes or whatnot, but that was no reason for her to just drop everything. Yeah, just to flee. So anyway, some people, you know, in chat room say, well, you know, the police should look into Rooney because he was in the area where we both disappeared. Oh, wow. He was, I, as far as I know, I don't know if he was ever um, investigated for a, either disappearance. I'm not sure if the police ever considered him as a suspect. These women are still missing today. Um, back, I want to end with our victim, Michelle. Michelle was an inspiration to almost everyone she met and her legacy still lives on in many ways. There was a nonprofit organization started called Michelle's Earth Foundation that's dedicated to promoting youth awareness and involvement in environmentalist environmentalism. 
Her parents also created a scholarship in her name at the University of Vermont. She wrote an essay um, and turned in just days before her abduction called A Reverence for All Life, and that was featured at Live Earth Concerts. It was also broadcasted on NPR, and it was published in the book This I Believe Too, More Personal Philosophies of Remarkable Men and Women. One of her professors wrote this after her death. Her shining soul permeates our flesh, the wind, the trees, the soil, and all creatures of life. She is here right now, surrounding us. She is in our practice, in the moments, in the smiles, and the tears. Her po- her passing obviously left a hole in the hearts of everyone who knew her. Well, thank you, Mercedes. Thank you. Gosh. It's pretty long. <laughs> but sometimes they are. Yeah. You know, to get all the details in there, to make sure you don't miss something right. important. And it's just, you know, in honor of her, I wanted to be very... Uh, specific and detailed uh, yes well thank you so much for listening to this week's murder we appreciate sharing our passion with you and we thank you for your support if you'd like to support us even further please please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment your subscription and ratings are essential to our success you um, can do this on your favorite platform for more information and links to our facebook instagram and twitter pages please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com We are so grateful to spend our time together to share our murderous stories. Thank you so much for listening to us and supporting us. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it It wasn't wasn't me. me.